Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to the DMN Podcast. I'm Chris Wood, Associate Editor of DMN, here today with Claudia Page, Senior Vice President, Partner Products for Daily Motion. Welcome, Claudia. Great to speak with you today. Thank you for having me. Thanks for having some time. And we're here to talk about publishing. We've covered a lot in the publishing space. And what are the challenges as you see them today facing publishers? Um, yeah, I mean, just to dive right into it, I think there are two ways that I look at this. Right now, publishers are really focused on maximizing their audiences and advertising revenue. But as they have less control of their audience overall through syndication or the fragmentation of consumption experiences on the web and mobile web in particular, they have less and less control of that monetization strategy. So for them, you know, really being able to diversify that those revenue streams, that's kind of where we've been focused as a company at Daily Motion, but also kind of the understanding the challenges for the publisher landscape there. Fragmentation just in terms of different devices that people are, are using and fragmentation of audience? Yeah, definitely. I mean, if you look at like where a, a, the average consumer may have spent their time or their screen time, maybe in the 1990s, it's about like five and a half hours on, on screen time. And that was television almost alone. And then fast forward to today, you have almost 10 and a half hours of screen time that includes mobile devices, your smartphone, right? With five and a half or a, a five hour chunk, even more time dedicated to television and 50 minutes dedicated to Facebook alone, right? So you're really consuming content across multiple you know, devices and streaming opportunities and that can be challenging for publishers to reach um, and engage an audience. So TV is growing then, but it's also migrating from the internet? in a way, into different platforms? Right, into different platforms, into different streaming experiences, uh, over the top. I mean, we're seeing you know, the Silicon Valley heavyweights playing into the space. As we know, this has been the trend for the last five years. Um, you know, it's not just owned by the big broadcast companies and the cable networks uh, alone anymore. Um, I like to say that you know, all media starts broad and then becomes channelized over time. Mm. You know, it's a really great way to consider how to really consume and engage or find and engage in the loyal audience. But um, for, the, for a consumer, the challenge is really how do you find all of What the, you want. Yeah, what do you want, exactly, from the most trusted sources on the subjects that you care about most, right? It's super hard to find all of that content. Um, and I think about just my mission as a whole and where I ended up in product or in media um, as always consistently trying to solve that problem. I mean, is it as simple as a branding issue for publishers to uh, get that trust and that recognition from readers to, to look for them? I mean, it's certainly one of the tactics or one of the strategies. Um, branding or brand awareness is important. If you think about the New York Times and journalistic integrity or the Wall Street Journal, and even Apple News's ability or inability to get them to you know, be part of their aggregated bundle. Um, uh, it, it is certainly one of the challenges or one of the, the tactics, but, um, but also just the way that content is being disseminated across the web. So being able to identify on a platform if a content provider is actually a trusted source of information. That's not a problem that's really been solved for on the platforms where we spend a lot of our time. Because it's disseminated so rapidly over social media and other channels, it's difficult for an audience to really follow 
where their source is coming from. Right, or even trust kind of the recommendation algorithms that are behind and driving that discovery. Right. So you could be in a streaming experience on YouTube, for example, and go further down you know, an AI-driven recommendation based on a very specific narrow subject, and then maybe come across content that you may consider to be trustworthy, but in fact you know nothing about the source and nothing about the integrity of that specific uh, publisher. So then from a content standpoint, what are publishers doing to make it really stick with viewers from or a, readers? Yeah, I, I think there's, there. it's interesting, I, you know, I, I like to think about, um, I mean, Peter Kafka at Recode had this really great landscape of media, sorry to back up a little bit, graph that has been super helpful at mapping out what the media companies and the publishers are doing to help make it stick, right, with consumers. But what I think I've seen a lot of, and maybe a lot of people aren't talking about, is that there's, we're kind of back to the early days of like 2001, where the portals were aggregating all of the traffic and the content, so AOL and, and so on and Yahoo. Um, and then the media companies started to fight back and wanted to own a little bit of the, that audience and build a brand around it and be able to maintain the message and develop the advertiser relationship so that they can own that revenue or the sources of revenue. We're seeing a lot of that happen again today with the duopoly, with Google and Facebook. Media companies are starting to arm themselves again and really think about building their own walled gardens so that they can not only own the content and the content IP, but also the distribution channels, the data, and the advertiser relationships behind it. That's how I think about them really strategically focused on building an audience and being able to monetize it. So then you're talking about uh, kind of more consolidation outside of the duopoly. Correct. Um, I think even more consolidation within hardware or within uh, the telecom industry, just being able to consolidate content and walled garden around it. And then in terms of monetization, um, what about the, uh, the, the way in which the, the landscape of, of uh, programmatic exchanges, does that bring publishers together in a way? In other words, how are publishers trying to navigate that? Because it seems like there's also a pricing issue with that, where they're losing a lot more because of the intense competition. Right. I think, you know, I can't really speak to how publishers are, are maybe improving or uh, focusing on evolving their relationship with programmatic um, advertisers but, or programmatic solutions. But what I can tell you about is at Daily Motion, we really think about making that programmatic exchange more transparent. So identifying and letting publishers understand who's buying. Um, that's really one of our key missions. And we know that that is a key focus for us because it's a challenge for publishers to understand who's buying across their, you know, within their environment and what their consumers are experiencing. Because we know that advertising can be pretty noisy and it can be intrusive to your consumption experience and it can sometimes be contextually relevant or noisy and intrusive. So um, finding that balance. Finding that balance and with programmatic in particular because it has such scale and tremendous scale, but also fraught with lots of challenges. Um, you know, we felt that not only building kind of the home for videos that matter, but also enabling publishers to understand who's buying across um, their uh, content whether it's on dailymission.com or on their owned and operated properties, when they're leveraging our player, um, made it a value proposition that we could stand behind. 
um, would you see uh, publishers kind of uh, trying to integrate more video into uh, their offering? Um, is that still kind of like a, a premium offering for some publishers? Uh, so from publishers to consumers? Right. Yeah. Um, so definitely. I mean, it's certainly premium when you think about the challenge that is involved with creating video content. Just it, from a budget standpoint. Just from a budget standpoint. I've heard a lot of people kind of argue or debate the opposite, like, oh, there are all these wonderful tools out there that enable you to create video quickly or aggregate content from within your page, but really what you're getting is not high-quality premium video content. Creating high-quality um, content in, uh, with a, for video it can be an expensive task. Um, even for the YouTube creators, right? They spend, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars on their, you know, on their their tools or their editing tools and software, etc. And time, just time, the time to create it. I mean, I remember having, and I won't name whom, but I remember having conversations as early as um, early 2017 with one of the mo one of the biggest publishers in the U.S. asking them what their video strategy was going to be for 2018 and were they planning to sell that video. Um, content that they have a direct sales strategy for it and their answer was we just aren't ready there we're not ready yet we're not ready yet and 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 really I think a lot of publishers are still thinking about this as being a premium offering back to mm. your point but it can be really expensive and, and time-consuming to get there um, and then what about the pay structure uh, is that something that viewers would want to pay more for do they still want everything for free uh, how are publishers uh, growing their uh, subscription is that a, a balance between revenue and charging them at the door right. or letting more and more people in? Right. I mean, it, it's a great question. I think there's interesting hybrid models that you see with the New York Times having a paywall and allowing consumers to have access to a number of articles per month, you know, within the same IP address or you know, browser sure. um, and then converting them to paid subscribers. Uh, and we've seen other niche subscription models also work for publishers like Politico or Business Insider. Um, and we certainly help publishers as Dailymotion within video um, um, enable a paywall strategy so that they can host content on Dailymotion but still drive, uh, still drive consumers or viewers to their subscription uh, strategies. So it's, it's certainly something that we want to help publishers grow in terms of revenue. Um, but we're also seeing alternative sources of uh, revenue becoming more interesting to publishers, even the New York Times. What kind of alternative strategies? Uh, I think one that we are really focused on is e-commerce. Um, you know, we see, and this is kind of the value out of, again, creating that, that walled garden of our own uh, at Vivendi. I'm not sure if you know about this, but uh, Dailymotion is actually backed by Vivendi. It's a major media conglomerate. It's based in Europe. Mm -hmm. um, but Within the Vivendi ecosystem parent company, we have Universal Music Group and Havas and Gameloft and a number of Studio Canal, which is a movie studio, and a broadcast company, which is internationally distributed. Um, we really see content as being the core to our strategy and content IP. So you can take this really great piece of IP, like the Paddington movie, for example, just really run, quickly run through it, and then uh, disseminate that through the entire Vivendi value chain. So we have uh, the ability to make that into a movie, into TV studios, into trailers, and for video for distribution, like on daily motion, to soundtrack, to e-commerce. And then within the player itself, we know that publishers are thinking about e-commerce as part of their strategy more and more. 
So we want to be able to be good partners and enable uh, merchandising strategies for publishers. So let's get, take the New York Times, for example, and again, they, they're always my favorite um, example, but of course. Uh, the, the wire cutter was a great acquisition for them to test an e-com strategy and an alternative source of revenue. With um, the wire cutter, I think it's always really interesting to think about how does the New York Times maintain journalistic integrity right. while also having an e-com strategy that drives affiliate revenue. Well, I think, I, I think actually when I was starting a company several years ago with a um, former head of product from the New York Times, he used to tell a story about Arthur Schulzberger actually having the editorial team and the advertising team going up separate elevators. They weren't allowed to even get together. Um, and it just spoke to you know, maintaining that journalistic integrity of, of the brand. But in this particular case, what's interesting, because we move forward you know, 20, 30 years later, and now you have a newspaper with journalistic integrity and a great brand driving revenue from affiliate fees from product recommendations. I think the way they're doing it is pretty interesting. So the editors and the writers don't actually know if the products are recommending are part of that affiliate network um, of uh, partnerships that they have. So they may actually make a recommendation that drives affiliate fees, or they may not. Um, but that makes it objective as part of that specific topic recommendation, whether it's you know a, a tech, whether it's a tech recommendation, or even some of the other subjects that they're starting to foray into. I mean, because that's not an editorially driven decision. It's the algorithm. No, it, it's, it's more, right, it's editorially driven from, from a, being objective from the, from the whomever is curating that content. The next step after that. In other words, the next screen that pops up isn't the reporter who's saying, and you should. Right, you should this. go on this. You should actually now see other contextually relevant content that might be recommended based on whatever the subject is of that specific topic. Uh, within video, I mean, we're really thinking about it from two points of view. To help publishers drive e-commerce and e-commerce partnerships or merchandising, we want publishers not only to be able to merchandise their own content, so whether it's, you know, let's just take a UMG example, an artist with, uh, you know, Rihanna with her, with her Fenty brand, for example, of makeup, but also we want to be able to do that on affinity uh, content, so enabling you know, the merchandiser to basically say, if you watch Rihanna, you can also, you know, potentially see the product again and again on videos that you also watch like this. Um, so that is a powerful model for publishers to earn affiliate revenue. A part of that, then. Yeah, be a part of that, stru that structure when it's contextually relevant. Because before, they're just selling the inventory or whatever, and then they're cut out of that end goal. That's right, that's right. And it's and not as scalable when it's just product on content. So you said it's more scalable. How how does that work? Okay, so let's there's merchandising available on video players across the market, but as a content owner, you can only reach as many viewers as your content, you know, specifically reaches that audience, right? So if you have a hundred subscribers on YouTube or let's say a hundred thousand followers on Instagram, you're only going to be able to market that product to that specific subscriber audience, right? Or the follower audience. When it comes to doing this on affiliate, or on, on affinity content, sorry, um, we're enabling viewers who also watch Rihanna videos to see that content, or see that merchandising opportunity again and again and again, because it's relevant to the video that they may have previously seen, or uh, to the content that they're really interested in. 
So we're again allowing other publishers and content owners to take a take a piece of that opportunity or revenue opportunity, which makes it more scalable for the merchandising owner and the publisher of that content. It also provides more opportunities to remind the same person several times if they need that to make that decision. Right. It's not it's not dissimilar from you know similar traditional uh, advertising models that you see today on the web. Fascinating. And it's really just beginning. It, it is. Seems. It is. It's in the early stages. We're really excited about it. We're excited about where we're headed. Um, and we think it's a really differentiated offering from what exists in the market. Well, thank you very much for walking us through this, Claudia. It was great speaking with you. Great. Great speaking with you as well. Thank you. And again, this is the DMN one-on-one podcast. Thanks, everybody, for listening and, <clears throat> and listen and read on dmnews.com. Thanks for joining us. <laughs>